Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com slash Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. If you live in the West or the South, maybe Santa left you some new bare root fruit trees. Or if you're back east or up north, it just might be the Easter Bunny making those deliveries. Well, wherever you live, we have tips for planting bare root fruit trees. You know, those six-foot-tall bare sticks with pretty pictures attached that will be arriving this winter at nurseries and garden centers. You know, just in case Santa or the Easter Bunny don't come through for you. Also, which blueberry plants are right for you? Phil Purcell of Wholesale Grower Dave Wilson Nursery has some ideas about that. And for those of you nursing tender plants through frosty nights, what are the best ways to protect sensitive plants such as citrus trees and succulents? Our favorite retired college horticulture professor, Debbie Flower, talks about the good ways and the not-so-good ways of offering your plants a few degrees of protection on these freezing nights. It's all on Episode 67 of the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, brought to you by Smart Pots. And we do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. Well, it may be winter, but Santa is coming early to nurseries in California and soon will be arriving at nurseries throughout the United States. As the weather warms up back east and in the Midwest, you're going to see more and more fruit trees, berries, nuts, vines, plenty of edible crops for you to be planting in your garden. And as I said, California gardeners have sort of a head start on it right now as Dave Wilson Nursery is delivering vines and berries and a few uh, fruit and nut varieties to California nurseries. What's in? What's good? Let's find out. We're talking with Phil Purcell from Dave Wilson Nursery. Phil, I was at the nursery at the other day, and I noticed a lot of Dave Wilson product had just arrived. There were uh, blueberries, blackberries, raspberries. Uh, I think I saw kiwi. There were olives. There were pomegranates. There's a lot coming in. Yeah, so what we do is we have two basic programs. We have a small fruit program that we put into four by nine inch called liner sleeves. And then we have our traditional bare root program, which is our our standard fruit trees. So we ship the uh, farm market program early so that it kind of gets the nurseries in the mood to, you know, get the the edibles thought out to the consumer. And at the same time, they, they, they tend to make nice little early Christmas gifts for people to pick up. And that kind of is the intro to, you know, our big bare root season where we send all of our fruit trees for the year. There has been a big change in the way that the product is being delivered. Now, when you said bare root, old timers might think, oh, yeah, the trees are plunged into a bed of uh, sawdust in the back of the nursery. Well, not so much anymore. It seems like most berry plants and others are coming already in containers. Yeah. You know, we've done market studies and the demographics has just changed where the younger consumer of fruit trees, they're just more comfortable with trees and you know, berries and such in pots. They just feel a little bit more safer. 
we still grow our fruit trees as a basic bare root and kind of give you a little background is that we field grow our trees and then we have just finished harvesting our trees where we have a digger digs the trees up we plant our trees about four or five inches on center and when these trees come out of the ground it's just a dormant top and bare root we grade everything out and then we bundle them then we ship them to our uh, retailers the retailers now Instead of just plopping that tree out of the, uh, the the sawdust bin, and you know some of them still do that and selling them, a lot of them have gotten into just going ahead and, and potting them. A very popular way of doing it is putting them into a uh, pulp pot, which is uh, biodegradable. It's it's a, just a way to get the plants out for the newer gardener who's not quite comfortable with just seeing a, a tree, a stick, and bare root and not knowing what to do with it. What do they do with the pulp pot when they get it home? So what they do is, the nice thing about the pulp pot, as opposed to a bare root, if you get a bare root tree, you need to plant it that day. With a pulp pot, it allows you to go ahead and prepare the soil and such, and you can wait till, you know, you can plant it right now or you can plant it in the spring. But you plant the tree in the pulp pot. It's made out of a paper product, pressed paper. So you can plant that tree in this pulp pot like you would a normal plant. And after about six months, the pulp pot itself will disintegrate and the roots will keep on growing into the soil. So it just gives you a little bit more options of when to plant that tree. Can you help out that pulp pot to to break down by perhaps soaking it before planting? Yeah, there's different ways of doing it. And actually, if you were to get a tree right now that is in a pulp pot, you can just pop it right out of the uh, the pulp pot and plant it in the ground as a regular bare root. But if, like I said, if you want to hold on to it, different ways of doing it is, like you said, soaking the pulp pot. We always suggest scoring the sides of the pulp pot in the bottom with like a utility knife to kind of help open things up a little bit to help uh, the process of breaking down. And so why is it that you... It would be advisable to plant it in the pulp pot if you've been holding on to it for weeks or months. Is there something about uh, the root structure inside? Yes. So what happens with the pulp pot is that it acts almost like a plastic container. If you don't have time to plant the, the, the tree right away, as the weather starts warming up, let's say you wait, you know, from the time you get the tree and you can't plant it for a month. If you just get it out of the sawdust, it's already starting to send out feeder roots that can be damaged if you try to plant it as a traditional bare root. So by planting it in this pulp pot, it allows the plant to start rooting out within the soil of the pulp pot without disturbing it. It really minimizes the possibility of that tree crashing and uh, not taking off. So with the pulp pot, it's sort of a a little bit of insulation to help it get established in its new home. And then then as the the winter rains come or you're irrigating, that pulp pot breaks down and the roots go out and you've got yourself a healthy tree. How deep should you plant that tree? Generally speaking, when you will buy a, a plant in a pulp pot, the nursery will have it planted at the level where we took it out of the ground. So it'll be, you know, you'll see where the the soil is. When you plant that tree into the ground, you want to make sure that you do not plant the the tree in the pulp pot deeper than the soil level that is in that pulp pot. In fact, we always like people to kind of 
elevate the pulp pot a little bit so that it's, you know, half an inch, an inch above your, your normal ground level. So any type of settling, you'll, you'll pretty much be pulp pot level soil and your ground level will be about even. How do you get water inside that pulp pot then if you've just planted it all into the garden? Is there a lip around that pulp pot that you can cut off to perhaps uh, make it easier for the water to flow into that uh, area? Yeah, so what I like to do, and there's different methods, is that when you plant the pulp pot, I like leaving the pulp pot lip exposed, you know, for the first few months. And when you water, you water inside the pulp pot, just like watering in a pot, but then you also water on the outside of the pulp pot equally. And what that would do is it helps the, the, the water transpire from one to the other so you don't get a stuck type of plant by watering inside the pulp pot and then watering outside the pulp pot. And this actually helps speed up the uh, breakdown of, of that lip. By the summertime, that lip is just going to pop right off. It's going to, you know, it will have disintegrated. Now, for those nurseries that still have true bare root, they do have their uh, fruit trees, their bare root fruit trees uh, plunged into a bed of sawdust. Now, one strategy we used to employ when we got those home would be to immediately plunge it into either a bucket of water a big bucket of water, or if you've got a, a blank garden space, uh, what's called healing it in, basically just sort of digging a shallow hole and getting the root zone buried in the garden soil temporarily until you decide to move it. Yes. The water part is we always suggest when you get ready to plant the true bare root tree is that you want to really soak the root so you hydrate everything. Let's say you bring it back from the nursery. And, you know, they'll wrap it in, you know, some plastic and a little bit of sawdust. If you let it sit there, odds are it's going to dry out a little bit. And the one thing you don't want to do with the true bare root tree is to have the roots uh, dry out. So soaking it, hydrating the roots are, you know, something that's recommended. Now, if you've got a true bare root tree and let's say, let's say you buy it on a Friday and you really can't get to it till Sunday, then healing in is a process where you just cover the roots with soil. Even if it's, you know, some soil that you're going to be planting the tree with, or if you have like a little planting bed that you can just go ahead and dig, a, you know, dig the tree into. But you want to make sure that it has some sort of type of soil covering until you're ready to plant it. And then at that point, we still recommend soaking in water before you go ahead and plant it in the hole. We're talking with Phil Purcell from Dave Wilson Nursery. When we come back, we're going to be talking about good blueberry varieties for your yard. You're listening to Garden Basics with Farmer Fred. Smart Pots are the original award-winning fabric planter. They're sold worldwide. Smart Pots are proudly made 100% in the USA. Smart Pots are also BPA-free. There's no risk of chemicals leaching into the soil, your herbs, vegetables, and other edibles. That's why organic growers prefer Smart Pots. Smart Pots' breathable fabric creates a healthy root structure for plants. Smart Pots come in a wide array of sizes, and they can be reused year after year. Speaking of the cold weather that's on the way, if a frost or freeze is in the forecast, 
Moving your frost tender plants that are in the smart pots that have handles makes them even easier to move closer to the house for added warmth, or you could even move them inside for the winter. Visit smartpots.com Fred for more information about the complete line of smart pots lightweight fabric containers. It's smart pots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to smartpots.com Fred for more info and that special Farmer Fred discount on your next smart pot purchase. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. We're talking with Phil Purcell from Dave Wilson Nursery. If you've been by your favorite local nursery, you may have already seen berry plants popping up at the nursery. They're going to be arriving at other nurseries throughout the United States in the the months ahead. But uh, Phil, let's talk about some good varieties of these berry plants that you carry there at Dave Wilson Nursery that people will uh, find uh, one of my favorites is blueberries. Dave Wilson has so many great blueberry varieties. What are the best-selling ones? It's it, it's kind of depends on which region you're in. If you're in the colder region of the country, you know they're northern highbush variety. In more of the temperate areas, we always suggest southern highbush. Southern highbush need less chill hours. Northern highbush need more chill hours. Most of your home garden varieties that are offered are, you know, it's all based on, but when do you want it? Do you want an early variety, a mid-season variety, or a late variety? And that's kind of how we want people to start thinking about when you plant fruits or blueberries or such. That's kind of what to do. So like O'Neill is an early variety. Emerald, really good variety, is something that we suggest. Instead of maybe, let's say you really like blueberries, and I tell you, you know, emeralds are great. Well, don't get three or four emerald plants. Get an emerald, get an O'Neill, get a uh, Reveille, you know, South Moon Sharp. So that now you have an extended amount of blueberries throughout the whole season, as opposed to having all emeralds at one time and nothing, you know, afterwards. Well, not only that, but by having several different varieties of, of, of blueberries, or for that matter, blackberries or raspberries as well, by having multiple varieties, you probably get better pollination. You do. You know, kind of a, a little known secret is a lot of our trees we put down are self-fruitful, and they are. But whenever you have another variety of that same fruit type, the cross-pollination really increases fruit yield. So that's that's why it's really good on blueberries to have multiple varieties because you'll you'll double what the plant would normally produce if you only had that one variety there. You mentioned that the difference between northern highbush and southern highbush blueberries is their need for chill hours. Uh, a little explanation of what a chill hour is. That is any hour between the months of November and February where the temperature is between 32 and 45 degrees. It, it, it helps that plant hibernate and get set for a new productive season. Here in the Central Valley, we're lucky to get 800 to 1,000 chill hours. In Southern California, where it's warmer, they have a lot fewer. But there are blueberry varieties for warmer climates that uh, don't even require 800, aren't there? There are. Florida, University of Florida, is is kind of like the hotbed for producing low-chill variety, 100 chill hours or such, that a lot of the commercial growers are adapting to. You hear, Even here in California, because chill hours seem to be declining every single year. Oregon is a hot spot for higher chill hour blueberries because they kind of service, you know, the, the colder region. So between Florida and Oregon, you can have, you know, blueberries throughout the United States, everywhere. 
Well, that brings up a variety of blueberry we haven't even touched on yet, and that's the rabbit eye blueberries. Right. Rabbit eyes tend to, the nice thing about rabbit eyes is they produce a little bit later, but they produce for a longer time as opposed to just a you know, standard eye bush, which gives you one big crop all at once. And when it comes to blueberries, I think it, it's universal, be it a rabbit eye of a southern high bush or a northern high bush. Don't they all like a lower pH soil? They do. They do need an acid soil base. The great thing about blueberries, and I always tell people, if you're new to gardening, don't know what to start with, but you want edible, start with the blueberry. It's a good entry-level plant that you can plant in a pot or in the ground. Plant it in a pot, it makes a nice decorative edible ornamental, and it's really easy to make a mix that is specific for blueberries. If you live in an area where you have very alkaline soils, it's a little more difficult to grow a blueberry in the ground. And a lot of times I tell people, put them in pot, put them in uh, whiskey wine barrels, where you can go ahead and make a mix up of organic ingredients, which makes the perfect mix for, for blueberries. But blueberry is a great place to start. If you're not quite sure about, you know, having fruit out in the yard because you're afraid of it, blueberries are, it, it's like the beginner's plant to start with. Exactly. If you're not familiar at all with blueberries, we should point out it is a fairly compact plant. Uh, varieties get usually from three feet to six feet tall. You can prune them to uh, maintain their shape uh, as well and still have uh, plenty of blueberries for you and, and the family. By growing them in pots, too, it's pretty easy to manipulate the pH of the soil. pH refers to the relative acidity or alkalinity of the soil, and blueberries like it on the acid side. Basically, a pH between, what, 5.5 and 6 is ideal for blueberries. And at Dave Wilson Nursery, you can go online to their website, DaveWilson.com. There, Phil, you're going to find a recipe for a soil mix that is perfect for blueberries for putting in containers. Yeah. Tom Spellman and I just last month put together a new, what we call our fruit tube video that shows how to plant blueberries in containers. But it's just a simple mix. You get a bag of organic potting soil, a bag of uh, sphagnum peat moss, and a bag of medium uh, pathway bark. And it's equal parts, one-third, one-third, one-third. You put it in a wheelbarrow or, you know, something to mix it in, mix it all up, put a little bit of organic fertilizer in there, boom, that's it. You you have your mixture. It's It's very simple. Now, one word of warning about peat moss, you need to thoroughly soak it in order for it to maintain moisture. Otherwise, the water just rolls off. And one trick I found, if you buy a bag of peat moss, is open up the top of the bag, stick the garden hose in it, and and let it flow. Let the water flow into that bag. Or uh, take that peat moss out, put it in a wheelbarrow or a big bucket, and fill it with water. And let it sit for a few hours to uh, soak up the water and then mix it in with those two other ingredients. Yeah, that's a very good tip because a lot of times these bags of peat moss have been sitting around at your local retailer for a while. And even though they're encased in plastic, they can start drying out a little bit. And then what happens is the water just works away from the peat. So by soaking it, you know, that that's a really good tip. And again, you can find the fruit tube videos at DaveWilson.com. Phil and Tom uh, have all sorts of great videos there on uh, fruit trees and uh, the berry plants. Yes. I mean, we, we, we have a, a, a pretty in-depth library 
on the harvesting the trees, uh, how to plant a fruit tree, how to prune a fruit tree, the concept of our backyard orchard culture. These videos, we want the homeowner to feel comfortable on planting their own orchard or having an edible garden because it, it really isn't difficult if you follow just a few basic steps. So on this video, it's all tutorial and we try to make it as user-friendly as possible. It's at DaveWilsonNursery.com uh, for those videos and some great information and including there's a a wonderful chart there, a, a a harvest chart, and all the various Dave Wilson Nursery uh, berries and fruit trees are listed by um, dates of relative harvest. And even though this calendar applies to California, if you live down south or back east, you can sort of get a good idea of what's early and what's late. Now, talking about blueberries, you mentioned like the O'Neill is early. Here in California, that would be ripening in mid-May. And if you wanted... A mid-season one, you might go with that Reveille or the, wish I put on stronger glasses to read this? Uh, you know, like South Moon, and then you finish up with Sunshine Blue. And what people really don't realize is that the, the commercial farmer, he's all about making sure that he has fruit throughout the whole season. And you can do the exact same thing at your house. You don't want all the fruit to come on on, you know, at the end of June. And then the rest of summer you don't have anything producing. So by using this harvest chart, it's a guide so you can kind of look at, well, do I want a, a peach in in July? Do I want a pluot in August? You know, it's a, it's a good planning tool. Visit DaveWilson.com for a whole host of, of very good, accurate information about growing uh, fruit, vines, and nuts, uh, no matter where you live, wherever a Dave Wilson product can be found, which is most of the United States. Phil Purcell, we learned a lot today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Time for a quick tip here on Garden Basics. Now, those of you that live in USDA Zone 9 probably are very familiar with protecting tender plants from frost. Maybe you're using frost cloths. Maybe you're being sure to make sure that the soil is moist to save off the effects of a frost. Maybe you're stringing Christmas lights in your citrus trees in order to add a few degrees of protection. The big old C7 or C8 or C9 bulbs that actually have some heat to them. That's always a good idea. But then you could go to a nursery and buy a spray to put on those plants that will allegedly protect your plants from freezing. Is that a fact? Well, it just so happens that retired college horticultural professor Debbie Flower, once upon a time, took part in a study to determine if that was so or not. But I think in your study, Debbie, did, didn't you do it on conifers? Yes, the study was done, funded as, as studies at colleges. I was working at a cooperative extension office and uh, they get funding from many places and one is industry. And this was a study funded by industry that mailed Christmas decorations to people who ordered them. So it was a Pacific Northwest uh, company and they, lots of conifers up there, dug fir and, and cedars and, you know, some, many I'm sure grown specifically for this industry, which would be clipped and packaged up and mailed to your house if you ordered them so that you can decorate your home with the lovely smelling real uh, greens of Christmas. And so we treated the cuttings that had come off the plant we had collected at our own on our own site and then mailed them to ourselves to see which treatment worked best uh, so that when the 
cuttings, the plant pieces arrived back to us, they were in the best shape possible. I can't tell you what worked the best. I don't remember the specific details of that study. Uh, and it, the answers went to the industry that does it on a regular basis. But I can tell you that I also participated in some other uh, studies with the same sort of material that was sprayed on those conifers. Uh, and holly would be another one, a broadleaf evergreen that were shipped in the mail. But we did it on plants that were alive and were in containers. And then we checked their respiration rate and transpiration rate. So we're getting into some big words here. The plant is alive and it has to breathe. It has to absorb air and it has to get rid of the air, it, the parts of the air it doesn't need. And a lot of that exchange of gases occurs in the leaves or needles. Needles do the job for a conifer. And they're often on the back, but sometimes on the top of the leaf as well. And if they're, they're called stoma or stomata. And if those openings get clogged, then that exchange of air cannot occur. And that's what we saw. So we sprayed the plants that are alive with the commercial frost preventative sprays. Then we measured their, again, we had already done it once, measured their ability to exchange gases with the atmosphere. And it went way down. And it also increased, the other thing we noticed that was increased uh, by the sprays on the plant was loss of moisture from the plant. Uh, yeah, in order to understand that, you need to understand the concept of osmosis. Osmosis is when water moves from an area of high water concentration to an area of low water concentration, and it goes through a semi-permeable membrane. If you make coffee or tea in the morning, you're using osmosis. The water goes into the coffee or tea and then uh, moves out and makes the, the drink that you get to drink. In a plant, it happens from cell to cell in many other places in the plant. But what we noticed was when the chemical that is used to prevent the supposedly prevent the plant from wilting due to frost is on the plant, just one layer of it, it sets up an osmotic water exchange where the, the water inside the plant, which is at high concentration, moves through what is now a semi-permeable membrane, which is the spray that was just applied to the plant out into the environment. So it actually increased the loss of water from the plant and caused wilting to occur sooner. We also did the experiment with multiple layers of the spray. That changed the water situation, still clogged the pores, still stopped the gas exchange, but it did. the loss of water did not occur. And our speculation was that it, it was because we just coated the whole plant with so much waxy stuff, so much of the chemical that the water couldn't come out at all. What was the reasoning behind the industry to come up with this stuff in the first place? It basically is a coating. It's a polymer coating that allegedly protects plants it staves off the effects of a frost or a freeze. It offers a few degrees of protection. So I would imagine a lot of people are thinking as they're applying it, oh, this will make the plant warmer. It doesn't make the plant warmer, though, does it? No, it doesn't make the plant warmer. And it doesn't even, as far as I know, allow the plant to hold on to any warmth that it has. So I really don't know. Uh, lots of things. There are lots and lots of things. <laughs> I had a professor who had a whole file of them advertisements for things in horticulture that were just somebody's idea, but they actually make no sense. Uh, products that come to market that people try to sell you, now it would be on the internet uh, probably, and it used to be in magazines. It, they, it can, they say it can do one thing really well, and maybe that's true, but it, there are other consequences in many cases. Sounds like vitamin B1. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes. There have been studies on that, too. (laughs) We'll save that for another time. Yes. Come planting time. We'll bring up uh, vitamin B1 and how you're better off just leaving them in those Flintstone tablets. (laughs) Well, we learned something new that if you want to protect your uh, plants, your tender plants from a frost or a freeze, especially your citrus and USDA zones nine, you're better off using a frost cloth. You're better off watering the soil thoroughly to help stave off the effects of a frost. You're better off stringing warm lights in there as well to stave off the effects of a frost. Right. Add heat, trap heat, or mix the air in case you've got a you know local friend with a helicopter, they can fly over your house and mix the air. Well, yeah, that's the other uh, thing you could do is uh, you could set up a big fan outside and blow it around your plant and that might help, but I don't think so. No, you need to bring the air from above back down to the earth, yeah. Ah, William, once again, we've learned a lot here on the Garden Basics Podcast. Thank you, Debbie Flower. My pleasure, Fred. The Garden Basics Podcast is going to a winter schedule, maybe just like your favorite local nursery. November through January, Garden Basics will come out once a week on Fridays. Then, as the weather warms back up in February, we'll return to our twice-a-week schedule. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. We appreciate that you've included us in your garden life.